welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a transformational practitioner and coach living in the UK. Hey folks, welcome to episode three. There are two parts to this week's episode, so we're doing things a little bit differently and it will all become clear why. First of all, let me introduce who my guest is, and it's someone who I was incredibly excited to talk to and someone whose books I've really enjoyed over the years. They're a researcher and former professor and for nearly two decades have taught courses in social justice, health, weight and nutrition. If you're involved in fat activism or body liberation of any kind, then you will have heard of their books, Health at Every Size and also Body Respect. And their newly released book, Radical Belonging, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unjust World While Transforming It for the Better, takes their inspiring message beyond size to shaping a culture of empathy, equity and true belonging. And if you haven't already read Radical Belonging, I'd highly recommend that you do. It's a a brilliant book and it brings together so many important ideas and um, and lots of different research. So my guest is, if you haven't guessed already, Dr. Lindo Bacon. And not only was it great to have a conversation with them, but also I learned so much from it. So just to quickly explain why the episodes are in two parts, we had our first podcast recording on the 22nd of December and during the interview it just felt like the energy was not quite there or the the connection wasn't there in the way that it might be. I know that I was pretty burnt out at the end of December and uh, I know Lindo mentioned that they were finding it hard to connect and they'd had a lot of podcast recordings I think 15 in the last couple of weeks. So we both kind of finished the recording feeling like maybe something wasn't quite right and Lindo asked if they could have a listen to the episode and we could kind of sit with it before we thought about what to do next and so I sent them the episode and they got back in touch after Christmas saying that they would be happy for me to release the episode they didn't feel that it was particularly inspired but they um, feel that it is good enough and they're trying to work around perfectionism and you know not kind of allowing that to stop them releasing things or to stop them in their work and all of that resonated with me so much. And they said that I, I could release the episode or we could re-record the episode in January sometime. And there was part of me that felt really strongly that it was that it was important to release the first part, considering we were both okay with it, just because neither of us maybe felt we were at our best. Rather than re-recording the episode and getting rid of the first part, I suggested to Lindo that we have a conversation uh, about that experience and what we may have learned from that, because I know that I certainly learned an awful lot. And I've noticed a lot of shame and a lot of discomfort coming up around releasing the episode, because I know when I listen back to the first part that I'm not responding to Lindo in a way that I maybe would like to, and feeling that it's not my best work. And it's really interesting that Lindo also felt that it wasn't their best work. And there's something around allowing that to go into the world and for it not to have to be perfect. So I hope that you get something from it and that you find it interesting. And I'm sure that you will, because the things that Lindo shares are really insightful. And I noticed that there's part of me that wanted to caveat the work with like, oh, this this isn't my best interview. I could have done better. I could have asked different questions. I could have whatever. But um, I'm actually going to just be quiet, (laughs) allow you to listen to it and encourage you maybe to think about where perfectionism or where the need for something 
uh, to show you in the right light comes up for you because I know that it certainly comes up for me and Lindo mentions in the second part that it comes up for them as well. So the first part is the interview that we had on the 22nd of December and then the second part is an interview that we had last week just discussing what happened and what we are taking away from it. If you have any thoughts or there's anything you'd like to share then please do head to either the Facebook group Quiz and Co or you can drop me an email gem at gemkennedy.com. So without further ado I'll introduce you to part one of my conversation with Dr Lindo Bacon. Hi Lindo, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, delightful to be chatting with you, Jim. Yeah, I'm really excited. And I was just saying, I've got a page full of notes of lots of things to um, to ask. And I guess the first thing I want to say is um, just how much I've enjoyed Radical Belonging. Um, I've read your other two books as well, but this feels like a real, um, I don't know, like a real culmination of all kinds of cool stuff. So I'm really excited to talk about it. That's awesome. I, I really put my heart and soul into that book. So, um, it, you know, I feel like... Yeah, like I'm, it's kind of like I'm out there on the line right now. And um, it's scary having this book out. And, you know, I'm in the early stages of getting feedback. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm thinking about the place that it came from as well. I heard you mention in an interview that actually it came from, and we sh I should mention the title so that people, if they haven't read it, um, actually have like a context of what we're talking about. So the book's called Radical Belonging, How to Survive and Thrive in an Unjust World While Transforming It for the Better. And the thing that's so fascinating is it came from you writing a journal on your history of unbelonging. Yeah. And, you know, another way of framing what you just said is it really just came from trauma, mm. you know, from the first step of the book was just writing about the ways in which I felt left out in the world and then um, noticing how that set me up to be distrustful and scared of people. and. Yeah. And so the the first writing where I was focused on all of that was really hard. But fortunately, I also had a lot of perspective. You know, I went back and recognized that, hey, but that's not all me. You know, like I also there's a lot of happiness in my life. And I feel like um, there's a lot of stuff that's really extraordinary and unique about me, too. And Part of that came from the struggles, you know, I had to develop, I learned to develop empathy for others and mm -hmm. more deeply. And so there was a lot of good. And so I was able to kind of go back to my original journal and kind of look at what, what strategies I put in place to survive it. And, you know, then I was able to go back a third time and use my skills as a scientist to explain, like, biologically, how all that stuff gets embedded in us physically mm -hmm. and how we take control and can manage it and um, also change our physiology in, in ways that are amazing to help us to feel more love and connection for other people. So, yeah, yeah I, mean, I know that's a really long-winded response, but I suppose I'm just really feeling um, what it's like to release so much of myself into the world. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's very different, I guess, from your your previous two books, which were very kind of um, still had the social justice lens and were still thinking about um, you know marginalized communities and um, but there was more emphasis maybe on the science and um, not so much emphasis on your personal story. And I guess like queerness is woven throughout this book as well, which is really exciting. So I can I can totally hear that that must feel very different from putting that kind of work into the world compared to what you may have done before. Exactly. It feels like now if people have problems with the book, it's it's more personal. Mm. Oh, I have so many questions about that. But I guess, um, yeah, I, I guess I, let's take it from the top. So um, you mentioned kind of in the process of writing this book around feeling this sense of unbelonging in lots of different parts and times of your life. I wondered I guess at what point you got involved in social justice or where it where you became more conscious of it or it was on your radar? Um it was a slow boil. Mm. I think I grew up in a very conservative household and so I suppose pre-college my politics were probably pretty far to the right. Um but when I went to college I think it opened me up to a much wider world and I started to be much more open to social justice, but I'm not sure that I really developed my commitment to change making until, well, actually, that's not true. Soon soon after college, when I went to graduate school, I was already starting to focus on social justice issues. Yeah, so it's really been present for much of your life. Yeah. Mm. And how have you seen that shift over time? Because I guess now your work, and this is my interpretation, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess now your work feels like it's more more rooted in your queerness and, and being trans, like you're able to kind of weave that in a bit more, um, whereas before it was maybe more focused on body liberation. How have you noticed that it's developed and, and shifted over time? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I think my my the central driving issue has always been body liberation mm-hmm. but i think in the early stages i wasn't really even able to envision trans i didn't even recognize that that was part of it and i think that the story that i told in my older books where i was focused more on weight um was mainly because I, I, that's the only story that we're told in eating disorders, you know, that I was told that I was a girl and I was told that, um, girls want to be attractive to boys and that girls fear fatness because it's thinness that gets you attractiveness and rewards in that heteronormative world. And I, I honestly believe that that was my own eating disorder story because that was the only thing that I could envision. Like there wasn't much trans representation. There wasn't, I I didn't know of another world. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I was writing in my earlier books. And it was only later in life that I discovered that my issues around my body had more to do with, um, not ever feeling like I was a girl and that the world viewed me in that way because that's the designation that they put on people that had, you know, my particular body type. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about um, 
one story in particular that you share in your book around when you ended up following a group of who you later found out were lesbians into a talk at university or at college. And the person giving the talk actually turned out to be Audre Lorde. Right. Yeah, that was a pretty profound turning point for me. Mm. Although I'm not sure that I totally, or in fact, I know that I didn't totally understand it at the time, but piecing it together later on, Audre Lorde really changed my life. So let me tell you that, tell that story to listeners who probably haven't read the book. Um, Yeah, it was early college and um, in college, particularly in the early years, I felt like such a geek, like I was just kind of watching the world and I never really felt like I fit in. And there were a group of people that were in a lot of my classes that I always admired and, you know, they they had a social life and they were active and, you know, and I was always kind of jealous of them. And one day it was like a a Friday night or something. And I was about to just go back to my dorm room and just be by myself. And I see a bunch of them wandering around campus. And um, I was kind of wondering, you know, so what do the cool kids do at night on Friday night? And so I just started to follow them and I ended up following them into um, an open room, um, and not even knowing what was going to be happening in that room. And just as I got in, the doors were closing. I was the last, one of the last people let in and there were very few seats left. And so I had to go sit like front and center, which is usually something that I avoid, you know, I would have liked to be in the back and I had no idea what was about to happen. And then the speaker walks in. And as you mentioned, it was Audre Lorde, who was someone that I had never heard of before. And um, Audre Lorde is a woman that has this incredible presence. She's just this, this large woman who emanates power. And she came out in these bright, colorful robe um, and really just... Um, um, Yeah, I don't know what what else to say, except that, like, she just has such a strong presence. And um, it was so intimidating to me. And the first thing she says when, um, by way of introduction, was something like, my name is Audre Lorde, and I'm a black lesbian feminist poet, or something on that order. And then she looks around the room. And out of everybody in the room, she just points to me and she says, you, who are you? And I'm sitting there and I'm just panicking. And the panic set in for me as soon as I heard the word lesbian, Mm -hmm. because lesbian wasn't something that I had ever considered for myself. Um, Until that moment, there was something in that word that made me realize that Um, you know, maybe there's something here, maybe, and maybe, you know, I just came to a talk by a lesbian, maybe everybody in this room is going to think I'm a lesbian. And I was shaking. And um, I'm trying to get her to, you know, move on to the next person and not talk. And, you know, she's having none of it. And she just keeps (laughs) pushing me and saying, identify yourself. And I say things like, well, I don't like to put myself into categories. Um, she didn't like that. Um, 
then, you know, I said something like, well, I'm a white woman. And she just looks at me with such disdain. And it wasn't because of my whiteness or saying that I was a woman. It was because um, that was so, like, unimaginative. I mean, it was so, like, like there's so much more to our identities than that. Mm-hmm. And so she's calling on other – she gives up on me, and then she starts calling on other people in the room. And everybody is throwing out – all of these more, much more colorful adjectives. And, you know, some people are homos and some people are queer and some are socialists. And, but the thing is that everybody else, what, what they were naming, they were saying with pride, like, whereas I felt like I had to hide and didn't want to show up. And Audrey's point in all of that, which again, I didn't really understand till later was that, we have to own our identities. And if we don't own our identities, we give the larger culture the power to define them mm-hmm. and, um, lab- and you know, define them as good or bad. And that, you know, she took on the word lesbian with pride and it was just an integral part that she was of her, of who she was and she wasn't going to feel any shame for it. Whereas for me, that word lesbian conjured up some something that was like ugly and bad and wrong. And it wasn't a label I could even consider for myself because mm-hmm. I was allowing other people's definition of the word to get in the way of being able to look at lesbians or um, possibly myself with pride. and. And I also just say that, too, is you have read the book that I no longer identify either as a lesbian or as a woman. But mm-hmm. at the time, those were the, you know, I was moving into real um, seeing myself as a lesbian. Yeah. And those shifts in our identity are super interesting to me as well. How, um, well, one, there's something there around reclaiming words that have been used in sort of negative ways, for example, queer or lesbian, and actually proudly owning those identities. Um, but then also how identity changes over time. And I guess um, it's interesting at that age that you, that kind of the extent of your identity in that moment when asked was white woman, and how much more colourful and kind of varied it can become over time if we allow ourselves to actually engage with like finding out who we are. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember too, just like how in awe I was of everybody else who had found identities that not only they felt like, um, you know, they could see themselves in, but they were things that they took pride in. Mm. Absolutely. And there's, um, yeah, there's um, a quote here that you mentioned in your, in your book is a quote from you where you talk about the tipping point of the pain of not being seen outweighing the potential risks associated with being visible. And I wonder after that encounter and maybe other encounters later on, like where were the tipping points for you where you decided, no, I I do now identify as, um, for example, more recently trans. Yeah. And actually that's only come in um, recent years that I'm identifying as trans and it's been incredibly freeing. And I'll give you an example. Um, I've, I go on speaking tour now and then. And when I speak, 
people treat me really well and, you know, people admire my work. And so oftentimes my hosts will sponsor parties for me and take me out and everybody's saying kind things to me. And, and yet as much as people are like giving me all of this reinforcement that what I'm doing matters and it's important, there's always this sense of alienation because people are relating to me as a woman. And I feel like there's this huge part of me that never got seen in all of that. And so we'd have conversations and, you know, people be doing this girl talk that always just felt so alien to me. And yet they thought that they were connecting with mm -hmm. me. And yet I never just really felt like I was in the conversation. And that is hugely different now to when um, I'm now taking on space and, you know, letting people know I'm genderqueer. And I'm not. And so people don't try to do the, the girl bonding thing anymore. You know, they have mm -hmm. to find other ways to relate to me. And the connections are just so much deeper with people now that. I'm fully present. And, you know, I realized that as much as it was hard for me because people were making assumptions about me, which weren't my fault, right? That mm -hmm. it takes active work on my part to kind of assert myself in order for people to actually see me. Because culturally, we're taught that, you know, this is a binary world. And People are taught to look at someone like me and see girl. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm asserting myself and letting people know who I really am, it's opened up like a whole world where now I can really feel seen and valued for who I am and not just feel like I'm valued for people's ideas of what they want to project you know I wasn't really seen then and so you know what that meant was they weren't really valuing me mm -hmm. yeah and I love how you talk about um connection and vulnerability in the book and how important that is just that sense of I guess finding spaces where we belong for me that's come through accessing queer community and fat community but yeah that that process of actually and it is a privilege, isn't it, to be able to kind of show all of ourselves in spaces because there are lots of people who can't who can't do that for lots of different reasons. But when we are able to do that, the what comes out of it, the relationships and the kind of deepened connection with people is really, really profound. Exactly. You know, and earlier in my life, it wasn't safe to show those parts of me, mm -hmm. you know, when when I. Um, I remember the time my mother busted me dressing up in my brother's suit and she was so ashamed of me. And the, so it wasn't safe. You know, I got the mm -hmm. message loud and clear that who I was, wasn't going to be valued. If I wanted to get value in my family, I had to um, assert some femininity to, you know, so that my parents would, be proud of me instead of trying to change me all the time. So it makes sense that a lot of us 
don't show our true identities. And this is an example of an identity where we have a little bit of power, um, or some people do, um, to disclose or not disclose. Other identities, like, say, fatness, is something that, you know, is visibly obvious to other people. Yeah. And so we're stuck with other people's projections. You know, we don't have the power to hide. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how valuable it is when we can find those spaces where all those different identities get valued. And I know what you're talking about, about how important it is to find our little insular communities, you know, like to find the fat community or the queer community, or, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a person of color to find other people um, who share that with you and how necessary it is to have those safe spaces where people can understand your experience. And I also think that we can also keep working on changing that larger culture Mm. so that we're valued in that larger culture as well. Yeah. And that brings to mind um, how you mention the shift in your work kind of going from, well, I guess, I guess a paradigm shift that needs to happen everywhere, really. So shifting from the self-help focus to actually looking at um, community and systemic issues rather than thinking, you know, oh, I have low confidence, for example. That's something I need to work on and go away and, you know, read some books on or have therapy. Yes, that could be really helpful. But actually, there's a wider shift in society that needs to happen. Like, are you feeling a lack of confidence because of the con- like continual microaggressions you face as a fat person or um, as a person of color or any other marginalized identity. Exactly. Because you can do all the work on yourself and, you know, improve your confidence and self-love. And then you go back into a world in which you're othered or denied opportunity. And um, the effects are real. Mm. So until we change the culture, the like we're going to have to keep redoing all of the work on ourselves. Yeah, it's sort of having it makes me think of like, um, and I don't know if I, I love metaphors. So um, it makes me think of like a little incubator where you have your your community that really get you, and you can sort of draw strength and energy from, and then you go out into the world and you know, you're kind of exposed to these really difficult, um, chilly conditions where you aren't able to be yourself or where just showing up in the world is really difficult and then needing to retreat again to this little incubator where you can build strength again. And I guess when it becomes really tricky when people don't have access to those incubation spaces. For example, at the moment with with COVID, I mean, we've been in, I can't even remember what number of lockdowns we're in now in the UK, but people are really struggling with that kind of lack of community, particularly if you're in a marginalized community. Yeah, I know. We need each other so so desperately right now. Mm. And I guess that's the theme of the book, like radical belonging. It's not about radical like self-survival or radical independence. It's about feeling part of a larger, a larger thing. Exactly. And I also want to say that in the larger culture, lots of times people um, shut others out, not out of a sense of conscious intention. You know, like a lot of the racism in the world isn't because 
people are consciously thinking that, you know, people of color are inferior. It's mostly because we've been fed these values for so long that we absorb them and we don't even realize that they're there. Mm. And it becomes unconscious. And that, you know, like I think about all of the police brutality that's been hitting the news. And like, if you've been taught to distrust black men, it makes sense that without even consciously thinking about it, your finger might be quicker on the trigger, Mm -hmm. right? That there's this biological fear that happens if you've, if you've absorbed these values from your culture, even if consciously you might not believe them. Mm -hmm. And so radical belonging is not just something that we're shut out of, but it's something that we all participate in um, sometimes shutting other people out of. And that we can all do work on figuring out how to make this more inclusive, about learning about other people's experiences and how to welcome them into our world and so that everybody feels like there's space for them and like they're seen yeah well there are just so many places where that isn't accessible or isn't happening um and I think that's why the book feels so powerful because not only does it take people through like a scientific understanding of things like trauma and um intergenerational trauma and all those kinds of things like what's going on in the brain but also it looks at how we go about then building the communities and the connections that we want to build like on an individual level and thinking about the parts of or the ways that we might be parts of groups who are oppressing or being oppressed so the um, the table I'm thinking of that you have at the back of the book where people can kind of situate themselves in in a social a social dynamic place I guess I'm not really describing that very well um but they can think about like places they may have um privilege and other places that they may not um so it feels like a really well-rounded approach to anyone kind of wanting to understand more about how they can feel like they belong more but also creating spaces for others to feel the same exactly and our world gets so much more exciting the more we open to being able to see other people and experiences and the experiences they have that are so different than our own absolutely and Thinking about that, I wonder what community looks like for you now and how that's changed over time. Oh, it's a difficult question right now because I think you're you're catching us, catching me at a time that's kind of unprecedented in, mm. in the middle of this pandemic. Because um, I feel like I've um, shut out a little bit, you know, like it's harder for me to access community now mm-hmm. and um i'm not doing as well as i could with it and um yeah i mean in some ways i would have expected that there's ways in which the lockdown would have been good for me because my friends tend to be people all over the world i've done so much traveling and that's just been like a big part of developing these connections with people mm-hmm. So I've always had a lot of kind of virtual connection with people. And so one would I would have thought that I'd be able to slide into this a little bit more easily. 
but um, it's been it's been hard for me, and I feel like I've retreated a little bit into my own little world, and I'm having more trouble accessing community during pandemic mm-hmm. times. And I think too, um, you know, one thing that happened to me a couple months ago was I got into a bike accident, and um, I. I'm, my body's going to take a long time to recover from that. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a lot of pain, which makes it like extra hard to kind of um, be out there in the world. You know, like how mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing moment to moment isn't as predictable. So I find myself much more protect, protective of my time. And it, it's just too easy to kind of want to retreat. but. As I become more aware of it, I'm also realizing that I need to take my own advice. <laughs> that <laughs> connection's what is possibly going to save me too, and that I do have an amazing community out there. That and like, there's so many people that would love to kind of hear more about what's going on for me and be there mm-hmm. for me. So it's time for me to use that more. <laughs> Yeah. And is it looking where you're based, like things might open up anytime soon, or is it still very strict in terms of how you can socialize? It's still very strict. And it Mm. just recently um, took a turn for the worse. I'm in um, California, which um, is seeing a rise right now in cases. So um, restrictions have gotten much more serious just over the last few days. Okay. Yeah. It sounds very similar to here then. Yeah, it it must feel, um, I guess it must feel different from the previous two books that you've put out in that you can't really be on the road, like getting more instantaneous feedback from people, you know, as you talk about the book and um, they can tell you their thoughts. I know obviously they can do it through the internet, but it's not entirely the same. I wonder how that, how that feels when you're putting out something that is so um, intrinsically linked to you as a person rather than just kind of theory and, and research. Right. Yeah. And I'm really disappointed not to be on speaking tour now. You know, I had, um, I had, uh, what was it like a 30 city tour planned out that was supposed to start, um, back in September and, um, everything got canceled. I think I might've been scheduled to be in the UK right around now, in fact, but, um, yeah. And so that's disappointing. And I feel like, There's something about being in the room with people where I can connect with them much more deeply and um, giving talks over Zoom is just not the same. Mm -hmm. And I'm having to develop way different skills to be able to kind of feel people in the room with me over the computer. Mm -hmm. And what I'm learning is that the actual lecturing isn't working for me anymore. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I need people, like I need to be interacting. So it, so the speaking tour couldn't just translate into me just speaking virtually. Yeah. And I'm working on trying to figure out how I can be with a group of people and, you know, feel their presence so that we can kind of be together. Yeah, that must be so hard, especially when it's such a part of your main 
you know, your, your job apart from writing as well. Right. And even in this, you know, you and I are connected by audio right now, but we don't mm. see one another. And I'm finding that difficult. Like it's, uh, there's something about like having a visual on someone and, you know, being able to look in someone's eyes that kind of helps me to be more present. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, are you happy to carry on or would it be um, preferable to switch to something else? Oh, no. I mean, this is, we have to figure out how to make all these adjustments for these times. Um, and I think more, it's kind of important to just acknowledge how hard mm. it is that the usual skills and ways we all have of being in the world don't translate so easily into the tools that are accessible to us right now. And yeah. that's making it really hard for many of us to kind of get through this pandemic. All the, like, there are so many things that I used to do to take care of myself, whether it's going on a bike ride, being out in nature, hanging out with friends that I just can't do anymore. And I've got to struggle and figure out how do I adapt Mm. to, you know, what is possible right now? Because life will always be changing. You know, even post-pandemic, we still don't know what that's going to look like, but it's not going to be the same as pre-pandemic. And, you know, we all have to kind of figure out the skills to kind of navigate the new situation we have. Yeah. And it's that re-navigation that I think is really challenging because especially if we've kind of worked around our trauma and have um, a good sense of the coping strategies that we've used in the past, maybe like for me, dissociation, for example. Um, And if we've found other coping mechanisms, but those are now not available to us or are more challenging to, um, to access that it's almost like having to start maybe not from the beginning, but we're kind of re-figuring out what it means to look after ourselves without the things that normally help us the most available to us. Exactly. So self-care becomes very different. And um, so does community care. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask actually um, a question around gender-based trauma. You mentioned people like everyone has experienced that. Everyone can identify with it to some extent. But also one of the things that I was thinking of when I was reading the book was um, childhood oppression and the way that adults oppress children. I wonder if you'd be happy to talk about that a little. Sure. Well, a lot of the examples I gave in the book were around my own personal history. And my parents loved me dearly and really wanted me to have a good life. And for them, what they knew to be true was that the more you fit in, the easier life is going to be. And so it's no wonder that they wanted me to be expressing femininity, you know, because they thought that that would give me access to better things in the world. And I think too often adults see that the more we conform, the easier things are going to be. Yeah. And so adults out of love end up pushing us into conformity. And that probably was a good temporary solution. You know, like had I expressed more of my genderqueer self when I was in high school, I could certainly see, you know, like that 
I would have been subject to bullying. You know, they mm-hmm. did that to other kids. Um, so there was a sense that they were protecting me. But, you know, on the other hand, what it contributed to was just the sense of alienation of, you know, not really being there, but just getting by. Mm-hmm. And we carry that stuff into adulthood. And it's taken me a lot to get to this place where my my life feels so much safer now. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I can express myself and feel appreciated and valued for it. And I live in this I live in this little bubble. The city I live in is um, called Berkeley, which is this very kind of progressive place where, you know, I stop, I don't, I don't feel like I'm queer here because it's just so normalized. Yeah. Wow. And then I only remember I'm queer when I travel to another place. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, you know, it, so we can do this, like we can create communities where, um, we don't have to think twice. We can just be and mm-hmm. we don't have to protect ourselves anymore because the community provides that protection and, you know, it's a haven for us. Yeah. Yeah. And thinking back to the um, the situation with parents sort of wanting to protect their children, it's such a difficult, a difficult balance. And um, I liked how you mentioned in the book about how sort of not not ever underestimating the importance of having an adult that for example a genderqueer child can talk to and just be heard and um supported and finding ways that you could maybe partner together to help that child um navigate something so maybe i think you give the example of wanting to wear was it wanting to wear a dress and um want like a, a a child in the book so if if a child wanted to wear a dress for example being able to say to them okay well i hear that that's what you'd like to do and um, this may be a reaction that you might experience and here is, you know, how could I support you through that? Or here are some ways that maybe we could, we could move through that together. I think that's such a, such a powerful thing to be able to ally with children. And that's something that I spend a lot of my time thinking about um, as a parent, but also someone who's um, really interested in unschooling and, and home education. Yeah, that's awesome. I know, like, just having adults in their lives that don't judge, but just create safety for them to just hang up their armor and just be who they are. Yeah. Yeah. And was that something that you had experience of in your childhood? Did you have kind of access to a a particular person? I didn't, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's why um, I developed an eating disorder. Like food was my friend. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I never... I never developed the self-care skills to um, kind of sit with emotion. And that was kind of an easy way for me to calm myself and soothe myself. And, um, you know, and, and later I moved on to drugs and alcohol or drugs more, not so much alcohol, actually. And yeah. And I think, Really, what I was looking for was just connection, you know, and without having any kind of role models or skills to stay with emotion, I had to find other ways to soothe myself. Yeah, and I really love that idea of not um, 
you mentioned kind of not attaching shame to those methods or the ways that we supported ourselves because um yes while they may not be the most ideal or maybe not ones we want to carry on doing forever they served a purpose and they were ways of us protecting ourselves exactly you know i'm so grateful actually to having an eating disorder because it helped me to survive and navigate a childhood when i didn't have any other skills to do it And, you know, it was a temporary placeholder that worked really well for me for a while. And then later, I could develop the skills to kind of manage emotions and didn't need it as much. And then, um, and food could take on a totally different role. I mean, I can still use food to comfort myself, but I also have a lot of other tools in my arsenal, you know, and so it stops feeling problematic and it just becomes yet another tool I can use when I need it. Yeah. And and I notice sometimes if I'm leaning on on food more than I normally would, um, sort of more recently in my life, I can generally take that as an indicator that something or some stuff has come up from my past that's kind of re-triggered that in me. Um and I find that a helpful gauge, actually, to be like, oh, if I'm if I'm using my old coping mechanisms, like there's something deeper going on here that maybe is from longer ago that I need to have a look at. Exactly. And it makes sense, too, that, you know, again, since we don't have our usual coping methods available to us, we're all going to just be much more vulnerable to the one to grabbing onto ones that don't serve us as well in the long run. Mm hmm. But I also think that we need to give ourselves permission to do that. You know, if we're having a hard time, the focus, like, it's amazing enough to just have a way to get by. And we need to applaud that. Yeah, so true. And actually just allowing that without judgment sometimes is all you can do. Um, yeah. And it's not to say that it'll be like that forever or that you want to keep using that coping mechanism forever, but it's it's something and it's served you so far. Exactly. And, you know, if it helps you get through the hard time, that's awesome. Um, and you could also be working to develop other skills too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love how the part of the book at the end um, sort of really starts to help you think about how you might develop different things. Um, And I wondered if you had any kind of advice for people who haven't read the book yet about what they might like to start to think about in developing um, other, maybe other coping strategies or kind of, um, yeah, different ways of thinking about that. Yeah. Well, for me, the number one game changer is always about building more community. And So it's about finding people and just getting to know people on a deeper level, you know, Mm -hmm. asking questions, listening more. People have so many stories to tell, right? There's, there's, There's so much that's fascinating about absolutely everybody. And it's in those moments of connection that you can feel more fulfilled and at peace. So I would suggest that that's probably one of the best things we could be reaching for right now is Mm -hmm. just finding ways to reach out to one another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so obviously you have this book out and hopefully you'll be able to 
um, tour in some way at some point, I really hope, and I hope you can come to the UK too. But I wonder if you have a sense, and you don't need to, this is just me being nosy, I guess, um, if you have a sense of like what, what comes next. Do you have any anything in the pipeline or is it just some rest time? Because um, it sounds like this book would have been a really intense period of writing. Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm positive that travel is going to play a role, you know, mm-hmm. once we figure out how and when that's possible. Um, and... I still feel like there's a lot of writing in me. And so I'm not sure what the next book is going to be, but I know there's stuff that I've got to get out. So be looking for that. And I'm also really fascinated by this whole idea of community. And I've been building an online community that I haven't launched or made open to people yet. But I'm working with some colleagues right now of how we can actually create a a space where people can come together across all of our differences and get to know one another. And, you know, how we really create that sense of radical belonging. So we're having a really good time creating the structure for all of that. And I bet you that community will be open in a month or two. Brilliant. That sounds really exciting. I'll look out for it. Thank you so much for um, for joining me. And I think that the last thing I'd love to ask you is um, if there's something that you're really enjoying at the moment, it could be an idea or a thing um, or a person, absolutely anything. But is there anything you'd like to share? Um, I just read a really beautiful book. The author is Adrienne Marie Brown. Oh, yeah. We Will Not Cancel Us. And um it, it's a really important book because it's talking about how in social justice communities, we are just being so hard on one another. And instead of forming community, we're just doing a lot of calling out about what everybody is doing wrong, mm-hmm. which, you know, I mean, it, it's that's valuable, but we've got to figure out how to do it in a way that's productive and supportive and brings people into community and belonging. Mm -hmm. And her book is just a gorgeous book that helps us to envision that. So I'm excited by exploring those ideas. Yeah, that sounds so great because I loved her first two books. I I didn't even know that there was a third one. So I'm definitely going to check that out. Thank you. Sure. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me, Lindo. That's the end of part one. Head to part two to listen to our follow-up conversation about the experience of recording the episode together.